still need a few people who can help out with uh, the Good News Club. We have enough, barely. The weakness with that is when you hit a week like this, when you have two or three people who for one reason or another can't make it, then all of a sudden you, you're stretched a little in terms of being able to handle all those kids. So <clears throat> just short of praying that a lot of kids will be sick tomorrow. <laughs> well, that's what happened the last time. I mean, with this flu thing that's going through Houston right now, I'm um, <clears throat> I'm just a little facetious. No, there there were there are 140 kids who signed up. We've never had that. We've only had about 110 or 112, right, Mary Jane? 110 or 112. But the last time we only had about 70 or 70 to 80 that showed up because so many were sick or going to other other things that came up that they needed to to go to. But we we do need to. Um, have some volunteers, so if anybody is uh, thinking that they can help out, they would really be appreciated. This is going to be, and then I'm, of course, not going to be able to be involved for after tomorrow for the rest of the month because I will be over in Kiev. And I noticed that, that the weather all of this week, it's colder here than it is in Kiev, so I just want all you all to know that. In fact, for three or four nights this week, the temperature's not even going to break freezing. I mean, the low's not even going to get below 32. It's going to have highs and balmy 41 or 42. But I'm going to go over there next week, so it's all going to change, and it's going to be down in the 20s and the teens just uh, just to <clears throat> make me feel warm and comfortable and welcome. So but um, be in prayer for that. Okay, I, uh, and then uh, this weekend, uh, this weekend on Saturday morning, we'll have our men's prayer breakfast. You can also, uh, I announced this last month, but um, my father-in-law, Pam's dad, uh, Ed Dries, passed away in about the week before Thanksgiving, and he will be interred at the Veterans Cemetery at Fort Sam Houston with full military honors this coming Friday afternoon at 2.30. So you can please be in prayer uh, for that service. It's just going to be a small service uh, for close family, uh, family, close family friends and, and immediate family. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God should stand forever. Before we begin, let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer before we begin to make sure that we are spiritually prepared for our study, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. (laughs) 
Uh, Father, we are indeed so very grateful for your many blessings in our lives, that above all you've given us a salvation not based on who we are or what we do, but on who you are and what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. Father, we pray that tonight as we study your word that we might be challenged and encouraged by the way you work in our life, by the way you guide and direct circumstances in our lives so that we can be confident that even when things are not going at all as we think they should, that we can relax and realize that things are in your hands and you're in control and that therefore we need to readapt our thinking to the current situation and think in terms of how you would have us to live and to apply your word with this set of circumstances. And Father, we pray that you challenge us with what we study this evening. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 26. I want to go back and just pick up a few things, a little bit of a rush at the end last week as we were finishing up chapter 6, but just to pick up some things in terms of application. Part of the challenge as we're going through these last four or five chapters in Acts is that we're covering historical narrative. Historical narrative is handled differently than an epistle or a discourse or some of the specific prophecies that are given in in the um, uh, in the prophets in the Old Testament. When you're dealing with narrative, there's just a lot of story, and it's important to realize that when the Holy Spirit slows things down and gives this much detail in a story, that He's making some points, but they're not made in quite the same way that. They're made in uh, epistolary literature or in some of the other uh, forms of literature. Now, what we see in Acts chapter uh, 20, 26 is that Paul is speaking before uh, Agrippa. And not only Agrippa, but he is speaking before uh, Festus, who is the Roman procurator. He's speaking before the uh, commanders of the five legions that are headquartered in Caesarea by the sea. He is speaking before all of these various uh, dig- political dignitaries, most of whom would come from the immediate area, the Gentile, primarily Gentile city of Caesarea, and various other lower-ranking uh, political uh, entities. And so he, along with that, there would probably be a number of other people from the local population who'd want to come and hear what the Apostle Paul was saying. So it's a tremendous opportunity for him to present the gospel, and he takes an opportunity to do that. When we look at Acts 26.1, we read, Then Agrippa said to Paul, after everything had been set up in the previous chapter, and they had entered into the room, and everyone sat down, and the situation was introduced by Festus, Agrippa spoke to Paul and said, you're permitted to speak for yourself. So Paul stretched out his hand and answered for himself. As I pointed out last time, the verb here is apologeomai, and it is related to the, to the, uh, to the noun apol, <coughs> apol, or the other verb apologeo, which is in, uh, for example, First uh, Peter 3.15, that we're always to be ready to uh, give an answer for the hope that is in us. 
The word has a technical sense of presenting a legal case before a prosecutor, before a judge, before a jury. It also has this uh, connotation in a more general sense of just presenting a logical, thought-out case for whatever a person is presenting. And so even though this is not a courtroom uh, situation, not a legal hearing, Paul is presenting a logical uh, uh, defense of his position, how he came to be who he is at this present time, how God has worked in his life, and he uses this as an opportunity to present the gospel to all those in his hearing. In previous verses, for example, in Acts 20 or Acts 9:15, the Lord had said to him uh, in his commissioning, "Go." uh, Actually, the Lord is addressing uh, Ananias here to go and and, uh, uh, heal Paul's blindness, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. So God's intent in uh, Paul's ministry as an apostle was to take the gospel across the social and economic spectrum of Gentile society as well as Jewish society. God has a similar intent for every one of us. He may not have articulated quite as precisely But we all are beneficiaries of the mandate that that, uh, Jesus gave to the initial disciples and through them to everyone else in the church that we are to make disciples by baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. Now, that is a broad mission statement for the uh, Christian church and for the church age. And we all play a role in accomplishing that mission. Some of us play a more overt role. Some of us play a a role that is more covert in the background. Some of us are on the front lines uh, teaching, publicly uh, witnessing, evangelizing. Other people are doing it in a more quiet, uh, more reserved uh, situation. But we all play a role in that to one degree or another. That's why one of the re- or that's not why the total reason, but that's one of the reasons why we are saved is to carry out this kind of a ministry. What we see in this chapter is the Apostle Paul as an individual believer taking advantage of whatever opportunity comes his way. I want us to think about a minute or so about the Apostle Paul's situation. This is sometime probably in the late summer of 59, uh, <clears throat> 59, maybe 60, but probably 59 um, A.D. The Apostle Paul was arrested approximately two years before when he was in the temple. Now, at that particular time, as we see in verse 11 up here, he received specific revelation from God that he would indeed eventually arrive in Rome in good health and present the gospel and teach the word of God to the believers in Rome. So Paul has a specific revelation from God as to what God's specific plan for his life is. 
We don't have that. We have a similar, we have a blueprint. We're told that that God has a mission for us in terms of being members of the body of Christ, ministering to one another, praying for one another, utilizing our spiritual gifts to the benefit of the body of Christ, that we're all supposed to play a part in the overall uh, ministry of <clears throat> producing disciples and producing uh, people who can who who pursue spiritual maturity, but we don't have the specificity that God gave to Paul. But even though God told Paul, "You will go to Rome," He didn't tell him when He would go to Rome. He didn't say, "You'll be in Rome by the end of the year." He didn't say, "You'll be in Rome by the end of next year." He didn't say, "You'll be in Rome in ten years." He just said, "You will be in Rome." Now, if you're the Apostle Paul, and God has told you this, that that he would bear uh, witness for the Lord in Rome, and you come to this point where you've been rescued by the, uh, by the Roman uh, cohort in, um, in Jerusalem, you've been brought down to uh, Caesarea Maritima, and that you've had interviews with uh, uh, Felix, and at that point, if we just go back two years, Paul would think, even though he's he's in somewhat comfortable surroundings, he's he's under house arrest, and they gave him a certain measure of uh, of freedom and movement. He doesn't have pure. He can't just get up and go wherever he wants to. His friends, uh, believers, can come and visit him. He can have ministry that way, but he his movements are restricted to some degree. So, if you were the apostle Paul. Put yourself in that position for a minute, and you have a mission that God has given you to take the gospel to the Gentiles, that you're going to proclaim the gospel to uh, every rank, every position within society, every every position uh, from the low to the high, and yet you're sitting in your uh, room under house arrest thinking, well, we should be getting out of here sometime in the next week or two, maybe five or six weeks. It is late in the summer. Uh, maybe we or we'll wait until the spring when it's easier to sail, but but it should be soon. A month goes by, two months goes by, three months goes by. Nothing happens. There's no movement. You get called in to have a conversation with Felix every now and then because he's really hoping you're going to give him a bribe. Um, but nothing ever comes of those conversations, and you just go back to your room and wait. Waiting is something we all enjoy, isn't it? It's one thing to wait when we know there's an end game and we have some sense of the time involved. But it is a test when we don't know when that end game is going to uh, come, come to pass. We just sit and we wait upon the Lord. So, and, and in a sense, that get, that's a real parallel to our lives. We don't have a specific statement from the Lord like Paul did that he would take the gospel to Rome. You don't have specific revelation from God that you're going to live in Houston the rest of your life or that you're going to have so many children, so many grandchildren, you're going to retire at a certain age. We don't have that kind of specificity. But we have a similar situation as Paul did in that we don't know when the Lord's going to take us home or 
if the Lord's going to come back during our lifetime, we don't know when it's going to end. It could be tomorrow. Let me tell you, there's not one person here who is any more sure or, or where there's any more certainty that you're going to be here Thursday night than any other person. Life can be surprisingly short and can end with great abruptness for any number of reasons. So we don't know. All we know is that God's given us this mission. Just like Paul, Paul's got the same mission. He may have greater gifts, greater responsibilities. He may have greater visibility, but we still have the same basic mission. So the issue for us is how responsive are we going to be until something happens to whatever takes place in our day-to-day life? Are we going to be responsive to whatever opportunities come our way to give the gospel to whomever shows up? Are we going to get the opportunity to be a witness? Uh, most of us and most Christians and most time may live what appears to be a rather mundane existence. You get up in the morning, you have breakfast, you go to work, whether it's an eight-hour workday or a 10-hour workday or 12-hour workday, you come home, you do a few things around the house, do a few things with the family, go to sleep and start all over the next day. And it may be that way for much of the rest of our lives. And that's how the lives of most people run. But within that framework, we have a responsibility to grow as believers, to mature as believers, and to minister to one another as well as to make disciples, to witness, to evangelize. Are we receptive and responsive to the opportunities that may come our way. I'd suggest that probably most Christians are so self-absorbed and so busy that they probably have hundreds of opportunities to witness go right past them, and they don't even know it because they're so concerned about getting done what they want to get done right now. I mean, I'm the same way. We get consumed with activity and working through our do list every day, and we don't have the we don't really pay attention to the opportunities that come along. And what we see with the Apostle Paul is a, an illustration of how we can operate in this kind of a situation. We have events that occur each and every day, and during that time, we get opportunities to present the gospel. And this is exactly what has happened in Acts chapter uh, Acts chapter 26. Paul gets an opportunity to give the gospel. He does this in an organized manner. Let me suggest that you should think through some different ways that you can give the gospel to people. And I don't mean just a drive-by evangelism where as you run past them, you say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, and then you move on down the road, but to stop and have a conversation with them and be patient about it because sometimes... It, it, it takes multiple conversations. It involves building a relationship with people. With some people, you may not even ever directly talk about the things of the Lord for six months or a year or two years because it takes time to lay the foundation with some people. With other people, they're ready to, um, they're ready to pray and trust the Lord right there on the spot. As soon as you mention his name, it just depends on where they are in the process and and what the opportunities are. But like the Apostle Paul, we should think through how we're going to present the gospel depending on the circumstance so that we have a 
have a basic outline in our mind that can be compressed to one minute or expanded to one hour. What are the basic basic elements you need to communicate in terms of, of the gospel? And one of the things that we should have in our arsenal is the ability to tell our personal testimony. And a lot of people have never thought about that because for uh, many of us, there doesn't seem to be anything very exciting or very dramatic or very interesting about how we came to, to know the Lord as our Savior. Some people have a dramatic testimony, and these are the ones that are usually trotted out at some kind of a banquet or some other event where we get to hear how the Lord worked remarkably in the life of this really nasty, obnoxious sinner. Problem is that we're still looking at that from human viewpoint because every one of us are really nasty, obnoxious sinners. We just might not have had those kinds of sins that this other person had, but we were just as obnoxious and just as fallen and just as lost as as, uh, anyone else. Now, some of us were young when we trusted the Lord. I was six years old. I really did not have a life of of crime behind me. I hadn't done very many drugs other than a few children children's aspirin and a few other things like that. You know, I probably had had my share of spankings like any uh 6-year-old uh should have. But my parents sat me down one day after church and explained the gospel to me, told me that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And that if I trusted in him, then I would have eternal life. And I thought that sounded like a pretty good deal. It was a free gift, and that was great, and I trusted in the Lord. Now, that's that's my, my testimony of how I got saved in a nutshell. Not too dramatic. Some people have great stories and interesting things that went on. That doesn't matter, because at some point in your life, just like in my life, I had to decide what I was going to do with the fact that I was that I was a believer, and especially I think this is true, especially of people who become believers when they are children. They grow up in an environment where uh, they go to church every. They don't they don't make volitional decisions to go to church. I don't I'm not even sure when I started that I had a volitional decision to go to teen Bible class on Wednesday nights. It was something that, that wasn't up for discussion. Now, later on, I really enjoyed it, and I went because I wanted to. But initially, that was something that w- wasn't an option. But when you grow up a little bit and you leave home after college, after high school, you go off to college, you go out on your own, the average 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, I hear today, sometimes they're 31, uh, by the time they finally leave home, uh, has to make a decision as to what, what, how they're going to run their life, what they are going to do, what the priorities are going to be in their life. Are they going to continue down the path of training that their parents provided for them, or are they going to go the way of the world? And in many cases, there's a struggle. They go out, all of a sudden they have freedom, and they decide, well, I want to try this, I want to do that, and Hopefully, they come back uh, pretty quickly. I went through something like that myself when I was in college trying to figure out what do I really believe, how do I know it's true, and, and, and how can I be certain about it, asking those questions that are often on the minds of, of, uh, of adolescents and young adults, 
trying to determine what where I was going to focus my life. That's the core of my testimony, is really coming to realize that if God exists and he has communicated to us, then really nothing else in life matters other than getting that relationship with God squared away and living my life according to the uh, uh, destiny that God has established for me because anything else is just going to eventually lead to misery. And so we have to make that decision. The Apostle Paul uses his own personal testimony here in a distinct way in, in, in being able to communicate the gospel to Agrippa and to Festus and to the others in the crowd. He uses his own personal story because that engages people. People are interested and like to hear things like that. It's not that he's basing his salvation on an experience, but that he is using his experience within a framework of of divine viewpoint to uh, teach how God works through the ordinary, everyday events of life and how God worked to to bring him to a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ and understanding uh, the grace of the gospel. So it focuses attention on, on <clears throat> how Paul knows that God is working in his life uh, through the gospel. No, somebody has a phone that is continuing to ring. I don't know. Now it's they hung up. Okay, all right. Somebody figure that out later. You know, one of the mo- two really interesting things happened to me. One time in Connecticut, I had my phone set. I was always traveling around in the north, so I like to have Dixie on my phone as a as a ringtone. And. Um, I had to leave right after church to go catch an airplane to go on a co- go to a conference somewhere, and Orbitz called to remind me that uh, the, or to tell me that the flight was on time. Just remember that, Bryce. Just as we bowed our heads in silent prayer for communion, Dixie played. <laughs> Another time, I was up here and teaching on Sunday morning, and someone who was in a distant time zone, had their computer on. I didn't realize I had Skype running in the background, and they inadvertently Skyped me right in the middle of Bible class on Sunday morning. So I'm understanding when somebody's cell phone goes off just because we forget at times. So anyhow, Paul is giving us his his uh, testimony, and he uses that in order to engage his audience at a different level to understand the gospel and to give him the opportunity to explain the gospel. So in his testimony, it's not just a testimony of how he was saved, although he goes through that in detail, but he is showing through that how God's directing his life and how God is protecting him in his mission. And so that is one aspect that we learn from this that we can understand when we are witnessing to people. You should think through your own personal testimony and how to communicate that and use that with other people. It can be short. It can be long. It just depends on the, on the circumstance. 
A second thing that we learn from this that has uh, great application is that Paul gives us a pattern for for uh, personal evangelism. As I pointed out earlier, the first thing that he did was he's responsive to the opportunity that comes his way. Every time he got an opportunity to talk to somebody, he's going to present the gospel. He was present, and all of these trials and other uh, investigations, he always focused the, the, um, his presentation on the core issue of resurrection and that Jesus rose from the dead. So another thing that we learn from this is from his focus, and that is, are we willing to think about how we can turn a conversation to the gospel? And just by asking questions, I don't know about you, I have a tendency to probably because I have the gift of pastor teacher, I have a tendency more to want to tell people than to ask people. But I find it very effective in personal conversation just to ask people questions and let them wrestle with the answers and not just give them the answer ahead of time. So that's a a, a very good way in which uh, we present the gospel. But when we do so, we need to keep the focus on Jesus. I had a conversation at dinner last night with some people, and they were expressing the fact that um, they used to live here. Now they live part-time elsewhere, and they were involved in a small local church in the area where they're uh, where they're now living, at least part of the time. And they were involved for a couple of years at a church there, and the pastor never gave the gospel. And I hear these stories now and then, or not more often, um, when I do, do a wedding or when I speak at a funeral, and people say, come up afterwards and say, it was just so good to hear the gospel. Uh, I've had people say my children are at an age where all of their friends are getting married, and I've been to several weddings the last year, and I've never heard the gospel. I've been in Baptist churches. A lot of people think that Baptists have a history of being gospel-oriented. They'll say, I've been in Baptist churches, and I haven't heard the gospel. I'm not picking on Baptists. Uh, I've long, a long time ago lost any hope that a Methodist or a Presbyterian, especially a United Presbyterian, would ever, would ever give the gospel at anything. But, but Baptists should, but they don't. I've been to funerals with some, some of the more prominent, well-known Baptist pastors in this city and haven't heard the gospel. It is terribly sad. That we don't hear, especially at a funeral. Nobody really listens to you at a wedding, but, but people listen to you when, when somebody's died because they know that eventually they're going to die unless they're 15 or 16 years old and then they don't think they're ever going to die. But most everybody else recognizes that sooner or later they're going to die and, and it's a teachable moment. And people, pastors just pass it up. We have to remember that Christianity isn't a cultural thing and Christianity isn't an ethical philosophy. Christianity has to do with a person's individual relationship with God on the basis of what Christ did on the cross. So we have to learn to keep the focus on the gospel. Another lesson that we learn from this is that Paul is incredibly successful at accomplishing his mission in this, in this chapter. 
because success in witnessing isn't measured by the number of converts that you have. It's not measured by having any converts at all. Noah preached for 120 years and didn't have a single convert, but he's listed in the Hall of Faith chapter in Hebrews chapter 11. Paul, who else could present the gospel more logically, more coherently, and more rationally than the Apostle Paul? And he does this before this whole audience, and he doesn't have a single convert. In fact, he gets interrupted at the end and has a kind of reaction that many of us don't really are, are, are somewhat fearful of, and that is that he's rejected and ridiculed. Uh, Festus jumps up and says that his all of his learning has caused him to go crazy, and he's actually insane if he thinks somebody rose from the dead. And Agrippa says that you're trying to convert me. That's the idea there. He doesn't say I'm almost persuaded. He says you're attempting to persuade me, and he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So we see here that that we need to get past that point where we think that failure or the failure of a response is an issue because it's, it's not. It's up to that individual. Our job is simply to as clearly and coherently as we possibly can explain the gospel to the person and answer whatever questions we can. And we never know what the future is going to hold. That person may, and most of you know this, I've had um, a couple of times when people I've witnessed to for 25 or 30 years finally trusted the Lord. So just because there's no response right now doesn't mean there'll be no response, doesn't mean they're not thinking about it, doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's not going to use it. But that person is going to come to the Lord. If they come to the Lord, it may take them some time. But then there are going to be many people that we give a very clear presentation of the gospel to, and they reject it. That's their decision. But that doesn't mean you weren't successful, because ultimately it's not up to us. It's up to the Holy Spirit to use what we've given the individual, and it's up to that individual to make the decision. We can't make it for them. And so the Apostle Paul here is a great illustration for us in that uh, he gives a Great presentation of the gospel. He gives the gospel accurately, and yet he's ridiculed, he's rejected, but he is indeed extremely successful in accomplishing that. All right, that's what we've learned from chapter 26, at the end of which we come to chapter 27. We don't know the time frame that's gone by, uh, this probably is close to um, close to the end of the two-year period of his uh, imprisonment there in, in Caesarea. And now they reach a decision because it's become clear to, the, to Agrippa and to Festus that he has to be sent to Rome, has to be sent to Caesar. And so we come into the next section, which focuses on Paul's cruise to Rome, Paul's Roman cruise. So... Um, he had quite quite the adventure. He doesn't know how things are going to work out on this particular cruise. He knows that God has promised him that he will arrive in Rome and proclaim the gospel in Rome. So he can count on that. So to a certain degree, as we go through this story and we read about the storms and the delays and the eventual shipwreck, Paul could really be relaxed because he knew he was eventually going to get to Rome. But he had lots of other decisions to make 
in the course of this voyage. And that's important for us in terms of looking at it, looking at it in terms of application, because many times, even though we don't see the end game, we go on a cruise or we go on a voyage or on a trip or we just look at the next three or four years, we don't even know if we're still going to be alive in three or four years. But nevertheless, on the assumption that we will be, we need to live just as the Apostle Paul lived on this voyage. He had divine revelation telling him what would happen at the end, but he didn't have divine revelation to tell him how to make decisions in the interim period. He just had to rely upon the doctrine that he already had in his own soul. He had to respond on the basis of the spiritual maturity that he had in giving guidance and answers to questions and uh, responding to issues uh, that came up. So even though he knew he was headed to Rome, he still had to live his life on a day-to-day basis and applying the Word of God. Uh, God does not guide us by giving us direct revelation in how to handle the issues of life or make decisions. He He's not going to um, move the circumstances in that particular way. In fact, a lot of times the circumstances may be very negative, if you were the Apostle Paul and you were didn't have the confirmation from God, direct revelation that you were headed to Rome, and let's imagine you're, you, you think that's what God wants you to do, or in light of everything that you've been told, that's a wise thing for you to do is to go on to Rome and to witness there. If you got on a ship and it had the kind of problems that this ship had, most Christians, the way they're taught in modern evangelicalism, would have landed at Malta and said, you know, it's pretty clear that God doesn't want me to go to Rome. If he'd wanted me to go to Rome, we wouldn't have had all these problems in the process. We would just be, uh, I'm going to catch the next ship and go home, because obviously I've, maybe I've, I'm trying like Jonah and I'm going in the wrong direction. That's what happens when we base our decision-making on circumstances. Often... When we make the right decision, the circumstances aren't going to be the most pleasant. But that doesn't mean it's not the right decision. And that's why circumstances are not the ultimate criterion for making a decision in terms of divine guidance. So when we come to this chapter, chapter 27, the voyage really is covered from 27.1 through 28.16. We'll look at it in terms of the initial departure and travel, the first stage of the journey when they're on the first ship, which goes from Caesarea, uh, Maritima, to Myra, which is in uh, Asia Minor. That's covered in the first five verses. Then the second part is the rest of chapter 27. It's the rather lengthy description of the voyage from Myra, Uh, concluding with the shipwreck in Malta in verse 44. In chapter 28, we see their arrival in Malta and Paul's miraculous vindication by God through a couple of different events that take place. One focuses on the fact that he's bitten by a poisonous viper. Nothing happens to him, and he survives it, Uh, just sort of shakes it off, no pun intended. And then the other thing that happens is he's, they go into the village 
then he heals a number of people of their various uh, diseases and illnesses. This validates his position as an apostle and his message of the gospel. And then in verses 11 to 16 in chapter 28, we're told about his final trip to Rome, which involves a changing to another ship and going from Malta to Puteoli in Italy in verses 11 to 13, and then from there he walks to Rome in verses 14 through 16. Now, a couple of things are very clear in this passage. I look at this passage, and we see that there's 44 verses describing this voyage. This is one of the longest chapters in, in the book of Acts, one of the longest narratives related to a single event in the book of Acts. Why has God the Holy Spirit given this information to us? Why has God the Holy Spirit given us so much detail related to this voyage? And it's important. If we believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God and is prof- profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, then we have to pay attention to the fact that these details are important. They're not important in the sense that every single word is as significant as if we're studying a for example, the Sermon on the Mount, or we're studying the book of Romans, or the book of Colossians, or the book of Ephesians. It's telling a story, but the story is designed to illustrate the key principle that we keep seeing throughout this, and that is, first of all, that God's sovereignty is the hidden hand guiding all of these events. Everything that happens is under the control of the sovereignty of God. Paul doesn't know how things are going to turn out. He knows what the end result's going to be, but he doesn't know how things are actually going to work out in the process until later on when he gets some special revelation from an angel that tells him that in the shipwreck everybody's going to survive. But up to then, there are a lot of opportunities for anxiety and worry and fear and and, uh, caving into different other sins. So the the principle, though, is that God's sovereignty is just as much behind the events of your life as my life. God is directing and guiding all of the events, the good events, the bad events, and the mundane events. So when things happen that change what we thought was going to happen, we need to learn to adapt mentally to the change circumstances instead of moaning and groaning which we all do, maybe only internally, but we all do, when we're really set on a course of action, we have a dream, we have a vision, we want certain things to happen a certain way in our life, and they don't happen that way, they don't turn out that way, we have to recognize that's the hand of God. And now we have to learn to adapt to the changed circumstances that God had a different plan for us, and that he's in charge of those circumstances, even though we may not understand at all what is taking place. And so now we have to respond to that set of circumstances and say, okay, how do I fulfill the mission that God has given me to grow to spiritual maturity, to minister to the body of Christ, and to be involved in the discipleship process under these new circumstances? Second thing we see here is Paul like every believer, has the opportunity and privilege and insight to influence the events as they progress. God's in charge of the overall progress, but within that, that this voyage, 
Paul has the opportunity to say things, to witness to others who are on the ship. He has the opportunity to exercise leadership and to give uh, guidance and direction. And because of the doctrine that he has in his soul, which is influencing his decisions, by the time they they land at Malta, he's gained the respect of everyone on the ship, all of the soldiers, all of their commanders, everyone uh, looks to this prisoner now for leadership and guidance because of the way he's handled himself a- along the way. So just like us, uh, he has no clue about the specific events or what specifically to do in each of those changing instances, He can just rely upon uh, the doctrine that's in his own soul, and that's the same thing that we do. So let's begin working through this chapter, chapter 27. The first five verses, we come to his, his travels. Now, I'm just going to leave this map up on the screen. I don't have any other slides, but this is a travel log, and so it's going to be helpful for you all to have a map in front of you so that you can trace this journey. He's going to leave from Caesarea Maritima. The first stop is in Sidon. Then they're going to head up along the uh, eastern shore of Cyprus for you sailors. That's the lee, leeward side of the island where you, they would use the island to shelter them from the strong uh, autumn and winter winds. Then he's going. Then they'll circle around the north. They will stop again at Myra in Lycia, and there they're going to change ships. And from there, they're going to go around the uh, north side of Rhodes, and then due to the heavy uh, heavy winds that they're encountering, they're going to try to slip down around the uh, eastern side of Crete and find some sort of safe harbor uh, for the winter. Uh, that's the first first five verses that are covered here. Now, we're told initially that once they decided that they should sail to Italy, and this is taking place sometime around uh, September of 59. Scholars will suggest it's either the, the fall of 59 or the fall of 60, but here it would be closer, probably the fall of 59, according to the chronology that I gave you when we first went into the book of Acts. Those are listed, those are posted on the website in the first uh, three or four lessons. So they uh, delivered Paul and some other prisoners to one named Julius, a centurion of the Augustan regiment. So what we learn here is that Paul is given over to a commander of the Augustan cohort, uh, to their commander, whose name is Julius. Now, the voyage that they're anticipating, under the best of conditions, would usually take about five weeks, usually take somewhere around um, 35 to 40 days, something like that, a little bit over a, little bit over a month. Now, Julius, as part of the Augustan regiment, is not under the command of Agrippa there at uh, uh, at the garrison at Caesarea. Uh, Josephus indicates that he's that that this uh, this regiment was comprised of uh, soldiers from Syria and Judea, and that part of their responsibility was to handle uh, prisoners. 
So they're not mostly Romans, they're mostly Syrians or others uh, from the Middle East there. And they've been given a title related to the uh, Greek name for Augustus, which is uh, Sebastus. Another thing you should note here is the pronoun, when it was decided that we should sail to Italy. This is one of the major we sections in Acts, where we now see that the that, that Luke has rejoined the Apostle Paul, and Luke is traveling with him and will be with him all the way to Rome. In verse 2, we learn that they're also accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian uh, from Thessalonica. So Paul is traveling with two companions, and there are also these other, uh, other prisoners that are, are traveling as well. In the ancient world, when people wanted to travel somewhere by sea, they didn't just call up the local Carnival Cruise Line or any of the other cruise lines and hopping a ship. They would go down to the docks and they would find a cargo ship that was headed to the, the same destination or one in which or a destination where they could shift to another ship. And then they would uh, work out a deal with the captain in order to book passage upon that, upon that ship. Now, the timing of this is is rather late in the season. Starting in about mid-October, the winds would shift, the weather would shift, cold fronts would start coming down from the northwest, and this made it difficult to sail across the Mediterranean. Uh, In fact, most shipping would shut down by the 1st of November and wouldn't resume until about the 1st of March. Most Jews would not travel at all between about the 1st of October and the 1st of April. So this is running a little bit late in the season, and we're going to see that because of that they're going to have uh, have some problems. A more common route of travel would have taken them south, and again, this too would have taken them uh, probably about five or six weeks to have made the journey. But that's not the way they're going. They leave Caesarea and they head north, and their first stop is at Sidon. And we read in verse 3, and the next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly. We see the respect that the Apostle Paul has already engendered here, that they recognize and probably have been told that he's probably not guilty. So he's a Roman citizen, so treat him with respect, and he's treated that way. Uh, Julius gave him liberty to go to his friend's and to receive care. So he gets to leave the ship, he gets a measure of freedom in Sidon, and he gets to spend some time with his friends. Then in verse 4 we read, they left there, and they sailed under the shelter of Cyprus. Now I think the um, the, new, the New King James, or maybe the King James says, under the lee of Cyprus, another, uh, another version translates it under the shelter, which is prop, the proper translation of the Greek term, uh, that's used here because the winds are contrary. So they're having to sail into the wind. So this is already going to slow them down. The slower they go, the more they're going to spend time in, uh, get out into the middle of the Mediterranean in more inclement weather. Um, as they head, um, head north, they come to, um, the, the southern coast of Turkey. They sail along off the southern coast of Pamphylia and come to Lycia to the city of Myra, which is only uh, mentioned here. It's identified with the modern city of Demra in Turkey. 
and there they're going to change ships. And we read in verse 6, as we get into the next segment of the voyage, then the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing to Italy, and he put us on board. So Luke, Aristarchus, and Paul are now on the ship, uh, the Alexandrian ship headed for Rome. Uh, it is carrying wheat, so it is loaded down with this particular cargo, and uh, Egypt at that time was one of the chief sources of grain for uh, for Rome. Uh, it was a large ship, probably. Uh, we have uh, descriptions from ships in the ancient world. One ship called the Isis was estimated to weigh between 1,200 and 2,900 gross tons, Another reference by Lucian describes a ship that's 120 uh, by 120 feet by 30, no, 120 cubits. So that would be about 180 feet by uh, 45 feet by 45 feet. And so this was, uh, these were fairly large ships. And we come to the end of the story at the end of chapter 27. We realize that there were, um, But 200, I think it was 247, I was just looking at the verse and missed it, 247, 267 who were on board the ship. So it was a large number. Some of these ships had a capacity of up to, up to 600 people. So there were quite a few that were on this ship. They left port, they headed, they headed west, but they were running into these headwinds as they went around roads that kept them from being able to make very much progress. Uh, they, they, um, uh, they're headed down towards the island of Crete, which is about 130 miles from uh, Canidus here down to Cape Salmone. And eventually their goal was to get, go into the port here called, or translated Fair Havens or Good Harbor, where they could winter. Uh, the trouble is that when they got there, they weren't sure that it would uh, really provide them uh, enough uh, shelter uh, during the winter. So um, normally the ships would travel about six miles an hour, but during this uh, headwind they were probably reduced to about two miles an hour, so they were making terrible progress, which uh, really slowed them down. Now in verse 9 we read, Now when much time had been spent, and sailing was now dangerous because the fast was already over. Now, that gives us a chronological note. The fast there refers to the fast on the Day of Atonement, on Yom Kippur. And on Yom Kippur, in, Yom Kippur in 59 would have fallen in middle to late October. And um, if it had been in 60, it would have been earlier in September. So it would probably fit better uh, with a 59 date, they're running very late, already running into uh, inclement weather. And then we're introduced to Paul's first statement. There are four times that Paul speaks in chapter 27. And here we just have one verse. Verse 10, he says, Men, I perceive that this voyage will end with disaster and much loss, not only of the cargo and ship, but also of our lives. Now, Paul is simply deducing this from his own experience. We know from uh, 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, or 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 11, that Paul had uh, been on many voyages. He had been shipwrecked more than once. 
And so he's experienced with the sea, and he knew the problems and the dangers. And here he just voicing his own opinion. This isn't a prophecy. There's no indication that it's a prophecy. And if it were a prophecy, it would have a problem because he is predicting that they might lose their lives. And at the end, we see no one loses their life. He's just basing this on experience. Divine revelation will come later on. In verse 12, we read, And because the harbor was not suitable to winter in, the majority advised to set sail from there also. So they get into this debate. They have um, uh, the ship's captain and uh, either the ship's owner or his representative coming along, and they're trying to make a decision. And this harbor at Fairhaven just isn't sheltered enough, so they think they can make it over here to Phoenix and shelter there. So they're going to press on. They just, uh, the Paul is encouraging him, them to stay, but they decide to leave anyway and press on towards Phoenix, verse 12. The problem is that they don't get there. Verse 13 describes a storm that comes up. When the south wind blew softly, supposing that they had obtained their desire, putting out to sea, they sailed close by Crete. So they're, they're hugging the coast. The wind had died down for a little bit. But then in verse 14 we read, But not long after, a tempestuous headwind arose called a Euroclidon. Now, two interesting words show up in this passage. The tempestuous wind is the Greek word tuphonikos where we get our word typhoon, what? Typhoon. Good, I needed that help. A typhoon. You know when the word's right there, but you know one, syllable, one, one vowel's wrong? Yeah, we get our word typhoon from that. And then the word urukulon basically means a nor'easter. So they're facing these northeasterly winds, and they're blown off course. And in verse 15, we read, The ship was caught and could not head into the wind. We just let her drive. So they just ran before the wind, and now they're coming out into the open Mediterranean, headed off uh, further to the east in their direction. Uh, they ran under the shelter of an island called Cauda, uh, which is located right here on the map. And there they had difficulty. They had a small boat or dinghy with them, and they had difficulty securing that. It's these little details that give us a sense of the historical accuracy. Uh, an eyewitness is writing all of this down and telling us what's happened along the way. And so they've, they're having trouble stabilizing the boat, they don't want to go too far south because if they get too far south towards Cyrene here off the North African coast, they run into a combination of uh, shoals and sandbars uh, that are very dangerous. They were called the Sirtis, and so they want to avoid that, so they're trying to keep from being blown too far south. Eventually, they try to secure the boat a little better. In verse 17, we read, when they had taken it on board, uh, that is the dinghy, they used cables to undergird the ship. And fearing lest they should run aground on the Sirti sands, they struck sail and so were just driven before the wind. They uh, Now what's identified there is using cables to undergird the ship. They're trying to 
uh, secure the ship with these rope cables, and there are three suggestions as to what this could mean. The first is uh, referring to a process called frapping, where they would wrap the, the cables around the boat from side to side, going under it and pulling that tight in order to keep it uh, reinforcing the hull better. Another option was to run cables uh, from front to back, from the bow to the stern along the ship's hull. This is known as hogging. And then the third option was running the ropes along the deck from one side to another, uh, securing it from the top, as it were. And uh, we're not sure exactly what is described by this. It could be any one of those. But they recognize their dangerous situation, and so they're trying to resolve that. Verse 18 we read, Because we were exceedingly tempest-tossed, the next day they lightened the ship. So now it's time to get rid of anything that's unnecessary so that the ship doesn't get uh, overwhelmed by the waves. And so on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, this is the third day from the time they left uh, Cyprus, and we're going to see they're going to spend about two weeks before they finally wreck on Malta. And verse, uh, um, there's also a targum from Ecclesiastes 3.6 that says that there's a time for throwing a thing into the sea, namely the time of a tempest. So that's a good application of uh, Ecclesiastes there. In Acts 27.20, Paul states, Now when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest beat on us, all hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They are in a desperate situation. There's no hope. Uh, everyone on the ship, had, except Paul, Paul's the only one with hope because God's told him that he'll make it to Rome. But everyone else is defeated. They don't believe that they'll make it. They believe they're all about to die. And this gives Paul a great opportunity uh, to speak and to encourage them from the word, which is where we'll start next time in Acts 27:21. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be reminded that it's your word that gives us real strength and real hope, that you're the one who guides and directs our lives. And even though we don't know the specifics, we can relax and know that every detail of our life is is under your control, and that when things don't go the way we think they should, then we just need to revamp our own thinking, readapt to the situation, and put into practice your word so that we can recognize it under the new set of circumstances, which is your plan, that we now have the opportunity to apply the word, the opportunity to witness, and the opportunity to be a testimony in those new circumstances in that new situation. And so, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with these things, reminding us that our mission here is not related to our secular employment, but it is ultimately related to our spiritual growth and our being a part of the body of Christ, our ministry in the body of Christ, as well as our challenge to be involved in the discipleship process. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.